0: And so my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
1: My fellow Americans, welcome to the Inspired Service Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Scheinbaum, and I could not be more excited to get this show up and running. The last few years, my work's brought me into contact with some of the incredible men and women working day in and day out to keep our country safe and prosperous. We do a decent job of appreciating our men and women in uniform, but I think we do not nearly enough to appreciate those who work behind the scenes and with little reward. This show is meant to spotlight their service, and I could not imagine a better guest to kick us off than a good friend, Ben Bain. In addition to being the brains behind much of the innovation going on in the Defense Department today, Ben is just one of the nicest people you will ever meet. So, Ben, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's let's start just talking about you and, and your background a little bit. Uh, you grew up son of a, of a military father, a uh, military couple, moved around a little bit, yep. and you went to school in, in Georgia. Why did a nice guy like you leave Georgia? <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, we moved around a little bit before we ended up in Georgia, uh, but Georgia was a great place to grow up, and then I ended up going to the University of Georgia, which was a great institution it keeps getting better Uh, but at that point you know I had a choice and I had to select between going to West Point or going to Georgia uh, for a really cool program there and so that was a tough choice but I was making that choice just before 9-11 so the very beginning of my freshman year fall semester uh, 9-11 happens and I start thinking hey did I make you know the wrong decision. But coming out of Georgia, kind of found my way here to D.C., and I've been in and out of D.C. ever since. So 9-11 happens.
1: You're in school. Did you decide right away that you were going to join the military when you got out?
0: No, I had a couple options at that point. You know, I could have dropped out of Georgia. I could have done a year there, dropped out, gone to West Point, where my dad went. So that was part of the appeal. I could have done ROTC, which Georgia has a great program there. Uh, But I decided, you know, based off my dad's experiences, that it would be interesting to keep the, all the intellectual freedom that a civilian institution you know, offers, and play it out. And then it uh, took me a little while after graduating for me to finally come around, but uh, I finally got there. So I just I had, I added a few extra life experiences in there before I ended up signing, uh, signing the contract.
1: <laughs> so, so you knew you wanted to serve and give back in, in some way, but your mind went
0: immediately to the military.
1: Was there, was there any consideration of, of civil service? Did that ever cross your mind?
0: Definitely. So coming out of Georgia, I came up to D.C. and I worked out like a, a think tank, Carnegie Endowment, for one year. It was kind of a one-year program. That was great. And then after a few other things, I ended up going to grad school. And then coming out of grad school, I had the same decision again, uh, where I could go for the Presidential Management Fellowship, which is a, a great entryway into government service. Uh, so that would have led me on the civil servant path, career path, uh, or the Army. And so at that point, I joined the Army. And so it's, you know, I faced this same decision multiple times in my life. You know, do I do civilian service? Do I do military? And uh, that time, I chose military. And, but it's kind of come back around because now I get to serve in the government still. Yeah. So there's,
1: there's a lot of podcasts, a lot of people who talk about military service. So we're going we're gonna to put a pin in that and, and, let, and let them tackle it. Um, but you talked about some of the different ways. You talked about kind of the Presidential Management Fellowship. Um, you've had a couple different roles in, in government now. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about kind of some of the different ways to serve or the ways that you've been able to, to get involved?
0: Yeah, in the last couple years uh, working in the Pentagon, I've been exposed to lots of different types of billets or, you know, ways to come serve in the government. Uh, so you've got, you can become a permanent civil servant uh, on the GS scale. And then above that, you've got the SES as a senior executive service. Uh, But then there's a whole lot of other options for you to come in uh, on a more temporary basis if that's what you choose. So there are fellowship programs like the Presidential Innovation Fellowship, uh, Presidential Management Fellowship is a pathway into the full-time career civil service. I was an Intergovernmental Personnel Act employee, an IPA, and that means that I belong to a think tank, nonprofit, or university, and that allowed me to come do a limited-term service in the government. So that was a great way to serve, so there's a lot of IPAs serving uh, in the government. So there's a whole spectrum, special governmental employees, highly qualified experts. There's a lot of different ways to get involved, no matter what your expertise level. And that's been really nice to see because government institutions are constantly trying to get be creative with their hiring mechanisms. So they're always trying to look for, for interesting people, and how can they get them in?
1: Interesting. Government and creativity. It's yeah. uh, not always two words that, that people associate together. But you're it's interesting because it's a, it sounds like that's one of the focuses of, of your work, in the Department of Defense today is is kind of innovation. Why does policymaking even need innovation? Are you saying there's something wrong with how we're making policy today?
0: I I think everything needs to take another look at how they do business. So I got to spend two years in uh, the Office of Secretary of Defense under the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, so OSD policy. So that's the part of the Pentagon that is uh, looking both regionally and functionally across the whole world on what are we doing with our military and why? How do we set the right policies? Uh, How do we respond appropriately? How do we exercise civilian control? A lot of that is is starting, um, or at least coordinated, through OSD policy. And so all the issues that they're looking at are complicated. They're hard. They're networked challenges. There's a lot of stakeholders involved, both domestically and internationally. And so anything that you can do to try to help them think a little creatively uh, when they are under the gun, they are working crazy hours they are pretty much at max bandwidth with all the things that are being asked for them uh, it's hard for them to t- take a breath and say hey are we rethinking this a little bit so anything that you can do to encourage that or set the conditions for that it's time well spent
1: yeah absolutely you think about a time when when you've been successful in driving innovation and policy any stories you're able to share with us
0: well, not me personally, but I could point to the Defense Innovation Board. So I'm currently supporting the Defense Innovation Board on their staff, and that is an, just an outstanding collection of outside experts. So we have CEOs, past CEOs, high-level academics, uh, just very successful people from the, from the outside, the non-DOD world. And this is one way for them to serve. So they are serving as senior advisors you know, to the department. They're looking at uh, innovation writ large across the department. Um, and they've been, they've been making great strides. I mean, they're looking at, you know, how does DOD approach issues supporting, you know, artificial intelligence, for example? How can they help support the new joint artificial intelligence center? How can they look at some of the emerging technologies and help DOD personnel at all levels understand what are the consequences of those? What's going to be happening down the line? And then also I support specifically the Workforce Behavior and Culture Subcommittee uh, which is looking at people issues because people are critical, so how are we making sure that our people are trained, they know what to do, they know how to do it they 're supported they 're empowered, uh, they have the free environment to you know be creative to be innovative, and so they 've been making a lot of great recommendations, and um, you know every day we 're trying to help the department actually do some of those things
1: yeah and you guys have been very successful in recruiting quite a quite a crop of Kind of elite talent to to actually serve on the defense innovation board. Some big yeah. names there. Right? You got the Eric Schmidt, the thing. And, and what's mm-hmm. what do you think attracts these guys? You know, you're just paying them a lot. What, why are these guys deciding to take time? They could be earning money and, and and serving instead.
0: That's a great question. I you know I can't speak specifically for them, uh, but I imagine it's it's a mix of. Uh, of reasons. So I think some of them just want to serve. They, they see what the department is doing as very important. They want to try to make sure that the department is doing things better as, as, be, as best as it can be done uh, in terms of modern practices and standards. I think some people are also surprised by their service. and They, they never really thought that they would want to be involved in government, let alone the Defense Department, because um, sometimes that has a stigma from the, from the, the non-DOD world. And so I think they've come in and they've been very pleasantly surprised at saying, wow, there is an, an outstanding level of uh, quality people that w- are serving in the Defense Department. And they're motivated, they're inspired, but they might not have access to all the tools that the private sector has. And they might not have quite the knowledge uh, on some of the uh, the most up-to-date practices on how to you know, for example, uh, do modern software development. You know, that's something that the department is constantly trying to scale. Like, how can we, you know, be at the same level as the private sector today? And so the board members, I think, you know, I imagine they're getting uh, a lot of satisfaction out of trying to help drive that change. Mm-hmm. Speaking
1: of, of kind of private sector tools, going back to, to something in your past before. Before you came into government, you were at XPRIZE. Yeah. And working on prize competitions. Uh, tell us about what, what are some of the cool things you were able to support through that?
0: That was a fantastic job. So, I came out of the Army. I was searching for something, you know, what I was hoping for was something as equally inspiring as, as serving in the Army. And I got really lucky. I heard about this organization called the XPRIZE Foundation. Uh, I had to move out to LA for it, and I'm definitely an East Coast guy, so I had to figure out, I'm like, all right, I think I can do this. But the XPRIZE Foundation as a nonprofit is unbelievable because they are challenging people around the world to develop new solutions to grand challenges that are facing humanity. And so they're looking at space exploration, which is what they're kind of famous for, for their very first competition. But they've branched out to prizes on ocean health, AI, and I got to work on two of the most interesting, which were on education. Mm. So the Global Learning Prize, focusing on children, so basic reading, writing, and math. And then the Adult Literacy Prize, focusing on adults, and you trying to get to them through their mobile devices on how can we improve their literacy standards. Mm. And so that was a fascinating look on innovation because that's just one approach. But the incentive prize has you know, a lot of potential when it's done right to make a huge impact.
1: So t- talk to me about that transition because you were in education and literacy and things like that. And then you pivoted into effectively security. How, yeah. what, what's, the, what's the string here? What's well, the common theme?
0: Well, so actually the, uh, my, you know, my stint at XPRIZE was more the, the outlier. Hmm. So coming through in undergrad, focused on political science. Uh, For grad school, I did international security, security studies. Then I joined the Army, so that was definitely national security related. But then I took that two years at XPRIZE and really learned uh, kind of what's it like on the outside. But then I was able to come back into government service, and I joined the Pentagon uh, in OSD policy in in a really interesting office called Leadership and Organizational Development. So that was a unique opportunity to be able to not just be working in the national security space, but trying to bridge that gap between what's going on, like what are the best things that are happening in the, in the private sector, and how do I bring some of those in and tailor those to the, the DoD world.
1: Hmm. How has your time at XPRIZE influenced the way that you work in, in DoD today? You think about things you've learned or were exposed to.
0: Well, I mean, it's a whole host of things. I mean, one is, you know, maybe the first thing that kind of seem, seems obvious to a lot of people is just the environment, the physical environment. So XPRIZE felt like a, a startup or co space of today. So you've got meeting rooms with glass walls, sticky notes in a lot of places, uh, very open, dynamic environment. We've had uh, we had uh, robots that were you know essentially rolling around the the whole office uh, with you know people's faces on them as they as they uh, beamed in. So the the beam robot, which is kind of like a teleconference robot that you could drive around the office. All of those things spurred. You know, just create a different kind of environment where you felt free to throw out some crazy ideas and then see what happens with them. And that was, you know, that kind of sticks with you. And so that just it's the entire culture and environment and every place is unique. And we talk about culture and environment a lot within DoD and specific DoD offices of how do they culture you know, how do they cultivate a an innovative culture? Well, first off, you know, what what does that even mean? What are you trying to achieve? You know, you don't want to be you know, any given office in DoD doesn't need to be the same as Facebook or Google. That might not be what would be most effective for them. But how can they look at some of those elements and apply those in ways that are going to get them to what they want to get? And so that's had a really big impact on how do I help other people see things within DoD.
1: That's huge. And and culture and government is another one of these things that uh, I don't think necessarily enjoys the greatest reputation on the outside. You know, people talk about how to make government look more like Silicon Valley or more like a tech firm all the time. What are some of the perceptions that you read in the media or that your friends outside of government have of, hmm. of public service that you think are just wrong or that really bother you?
0: I mean, not, not everything's wrong. Uh, <laughs> okay. You know, there's certainly, I'm sure there's some stereotypes that you can find uh, as, you know, true stories in some places of the government. But each part of the, like, the government is so huge. And so when you're looking at each one of these different, you know, parts of the executive or the legislative, you know, they all have their own kind of microcultures within the government. So the government's just not one homogenous entity. And then DOD is so huge that it itself has all these different subgroups, whether it's the services and you've got joint staff, all the different offices of, uh, of OSD, the Office of Secretary of Defense. Um, so they all kind of have their own unique uh culture for good or bad, but there's a lot of people that are doing, you know, great stuff in government that's trying to change that. So they're trying to get people to question. So it's not, the right answer is not to try to get government to look like Silicon Valley. Not in every case. Probably in most cases, that's probably not the answer. But how are you trying to rethink and be more intentional with the culture that you're setting as leaders? And how does that affect what you're getting from all your people? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a question that a lot of people are asking throughout the government, whether it's through... The, the U.S. Digital Service, which has branches in many parts of the executive, and that's an awesome program, so they're looking at, you know, more software programs, but that's really changing culture. Um, but there's plenty of different ways they can get outside kind of uh, influence.
1: Hmm. Anything that you've seen that's like totally surprised What would totally surprise
0: us? Well, there's a room inside the Pentagon. Uh, there's an office. It's a branch of the U.S. Digital Service. It's called the Defense Digital Service, or DDS. And you walk in there and it really is like you're walking into Silicon Valley Uh, they have a they've adopted a persona of kind of the rebel alliance from Star Wars and so you see Star Wars imagery everywhere Um, you see a very open office space you see people working on different types of laptops which is not always a normal thing in government uh, especially DOD for all the security risks, but they managed to handle a lot of these things, and they're really driving a, a culture change. And so, again, this is one of those examples where I've talked to a lot of offices where the answer for them might not be to look like the Defense Digital Service, but they also might not want to look like the traditional DOD—you know, very heavy bureaucratic office. And so, they're trying to find a balance. And the leaders are very well intentioned, but it takes a lot of hard work. I mean, you know, you know that it's culture is really hard to. Define. It's hard to create. It's hard to sustain over time, and those are all questions that you know really good people are are trying to you know they're challenging themselves with.
1: Yeah, for sure, and especially I think you know we've we've talked a little bit about the the change in uh, senior leadership, right? And in a, in a mm-hmm. culture where people are kind of in and out every few years, what's what's the mindset like when you know a, a leadership changes, whether you agree with them or not? You mm-hmm. know how do you how do you kind of steel yourself and Prepare yourself to just execute a mission, regardless of whether or not you agree with the kind of what's being what's being asked of you.
0: I think most people just remember the really big picture. You know, they're serving the United States of America. That is an outstanding privilege to have. It's an honor to serve, and they get to work on unbelievable challenges. I mean, everybody. You know, that's kind of a big thing in Silicon Valley. Is like we just want problems. They're more interested in problems and challenges than they are like money or other things or solutions but it's like they, they always want to dig into a, a real hard problem well government has a ton of those problems mm-hmm. and DoD has some of the hardest problems out there so I think at least everybody that I've worked with within OSD policy and now at the Defense Innovation Board for kind of like talking to all the different offices that are working on innovation across DoD they're just inspired by the, the overall mission you know like how are we maintaining our level of security how are we going to make sure that we're competing with all the potential rivals that are out there in the world? And those, that's very inspiring. You know, it doesn't take very much to get, you just kind of sometimes you have to get out of your day to day task and like, Hey, I'm writing this memo and I'm stuck here. And it's, you know, six 30 at night, seven at night, this is due, you know, before I get to go home. And there's like all this pressure here. Cause this is, there's a lot riding on this. It doesn't, but sometimes you just have to step back, you know, just a little bit, take a breath. You're like, wow. Look at what I'm doing. You know, I'm really affecting, you know, national security policy, and that's outstanding. That's just, that's a really cool thing. So I think most people stay focused on those things, but the leadership question is critical. We always need good leaders, whether you're in the private sector, anywhere, but it's especially true in government. So when that leadership changes, you're always just trying to make the best of it, and you're trying to support those leaders as best you can.
1: Mm. I know you've talked a lot about, you know, needing to deal with many different kinds of problems and a lot of complexity at any given time. And I know that you happen to be a connoisseur of mental models. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about what, why mental models of all the tools?
0: I'm just, I'm just a big fan of, so there's a, a blog which I, I've shared with you before called Farnham Street Blog. This guy named Shane Parrish, he, he, go, he kind of collects all these different mental models, just different ways to look at the world. The idea is that if you only have one way to look at the world, then everything you see is going to, you're going to try to fit that into your your mental model. It's very human because you're always trying to like fit things that you see into a pattern that you understand because that's how we're built. But then you really need to start challenging yourself in a lot of different ways. And so when you start thinking about like, oh, how can I learn something from the world of physics and apply that to business? Or how can I learn something from the world of philosophy and apply that to my national security issue and the more that you can challenge yourself and kind of reframe issues in new ways and see things in new ways that's where real creativity starts coming from so applying kind of old already established things in new ways and that essentially will oftentimes come up with something great if you do it right and so it's hard to do but the mental models is just a it's a way of thinking and and constantly trying to challenge yourself to be smarter i guess
1: so i know by definition you shouldn't have a favorite but you gotta have a favorite. Give us a mental model that's just, what, what do you love?
0: So a lot of people have heard of Occam's Razor before. So essentially like the, the simplest explanation is, is, is probably the right one. There's another one called the Hanlon's Razor, which I like to, I bring up a lot for people. And I'm probably messing it up, but for me it means that don't assume that everybody's out to get you there's a lot of different when you're looking at other people and what goes on you don't need to assume that you know you're kind of the center of the world and, and that they're uh, whatever they're doing is essentially kind of like out to get you um, there could be a whole lot of other explanations for that and trying to get people to constantly remember that is really important so at, especially at the leadership level when you're talking about developing people that are below you subordinates or your peers and trying to you know, help them along or even kind of friendly reminders to your boss of, of trying to understand a situation especially in in these complex government organizations where collaboration and, uh, you know, essentially coordination is, is a, a key part of every single day, uh, mm-hmm. where you're working across offices, across people, they all have different equities, and you're always trying to, you know, try to put a, a good spin on it that'll probably serve you well.
1: We have a, a common saying out of school that you should always assume best intentions.
0: That's a great way to put it.
1: It's, uh, it's a tough one to follow. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in when a, you're in the moment. <laughs> and in a culture that's, that's perhaps known for uh, you know, bureaucratic knife fighting, that sounds, uh, that sounds really tough.
0: But part of that is you have to get to the point where you can assume a positive intention. And that's a human relationship. So if you've, if you're only emailing back and forth with somebody on a group email it's probably pretty easy to just be like, ah, I really hate that person. That person sucks. You know, they're not helping me. They're out to get me. Versus if you can take the time, go have a coffee with someone, build up some kind of personal rapport, even if you're not going to be best friends then you can start understanding where they're coming from. And, you know, that really opens the door to being able to kind of extend that, you know, positive intention. Mm. Mm.
1: So do you do you have friends at work or do you just have colleagues? Can you have governmental friends? Oh,
0: we have a lot of friends. We, we have a very friendly office. We're actually, um, we have a great culture. But that's, you know, that's something that has to be constantly fed, if you will. You know, people are coming up with good ideas of... How can you put stuff on the wall to kind of get people involved and thinking about it? Um, How can you celebrate people's successes? Uh, How do you just recognize people for good work? Uh, If somebody's going through something tough, how do you, you know, go out of your way? Even a small gesture. So all those little things kind of add up. And that makes for, you know, a really friendly environment.
1: Mm. Yeah, so it sounds like you all are uh, kind of in it together. Are you all plotting kind of like an overthrow of the government or something? Is this some deep state stuff? Or?
0: No, 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 not at all, not at all.
1: <laughs> there's, you know, there's there's another term that's been kind of popularized in the last couple of years of the swamp, right? Kind of mm-hmm. D.C. Is, as the swamp. What's uh, what's it what's it feel like when you hear your, your hometown being called a swamp?
0: I mean, as far as I can tell when people say that, they're referring to, for the most part, You know, government, uh, or or the the unique relationships that you might find here in D.C. between government and lobby firms, for example, and and different you know specifically the Hill and and parts of the executive, and any time that somebody's talking referring to the swamp about the civil servants, you know, really really troubles me because we've got some great civil servants, not. You know, there's always room for improvement. There are a lot of parts of government where they have public-facing services that could be improved greatly. But there are places and people that are, are drastically improving that. So, for example, as a veteran, I have uh, access to the VA, to the, uh, the you know, the Veteran Affairs, Department of Veteran Affairs. And when I got out in 2013, you know, I had a real issue with just trying to engage with the VA. Their online system was fairly frustrating and it was hard to get answers on, on on some pressing questions that I had. But now the U.S. Digital Service kind of out outcropping the, the office there for the, the VA Digital Service. They're doing amazing things. They essentially totally redid the website following modern software practices So starting small and then expanding and taking over everything. And now they deliver a really quality product that they're trying to spread the word on because they have such a bad reputation. And yet they're, coming, they're overcoming some of those things, but it's going to be a, a really hard effort to kind of overcome that. But when I hear that swamp, it's really troubling um, because you want to keep these great inspired people working in government. Because if you start losing those people that have been in service for five years, 10 years, 15 years, and they leave early, you're going to start having real issues. There are real consequences to losing that talent. Uh, across the board, whether they're, you know, in OSD policy, working on national security policy or there's, you know, somewhere in the VA, somebody's going to be affected when you start losing all that great talent.
1: Yeah. So you don't have a favorite swamp creature. Then. I do not. <laughs> no. Then what's kind of the long-term vision? Right? Is, is service, uh, something that you see being kind of a lifelong journey for you, or do you think you're going to pop back over to the private sector at some point? What's, what's the future got in
0: store? That's a great question. I think there's also a lot of people, not just you know me, that are thinking about this the same thing. So there are people serving in government. They say, hey, you know, it's a tough choice actually, because if you stay in government, government is so diverse, even just within the Defense Department, that you could stay there and have a really enriching, long career in many different offices, doing many different things, uh, doing all great work, and that's fantastic. The other option is to kind of go out and then come back in. And so there's different ways to do that. You know, you go out to the private sector, you see how they're doing some of their things, and that. And then, if you come back in at a different level or a different job, that allows you to apply those new learnings in new ways. So neither one is correct, but it, you know, it can be tough. It can be tough to make that decision. I'm working now in the defense innovation space, you know, with the Defense Innovation Board, and there's a lot of interesting offices across DOD that are trying to work on, you know, "quote unquote" innovation. You know, that means a lot, a lot of things, to a lot of people these days. It's Kind of one of the buzzwords, but. Thinking about how do you help merge those worlds between like kind of the, the sexy Silicon Valley innovation, mindset, culture, technology with what DOD is doing. You know, that's a, I just kind of walked into it at a time when that's you know, getting a lot of attention because of the importance of the, all the emerging technologies and, and what that's going to mean for the world and, and competition around the world. And so I think there's a lot of rich space here, whether I, I stay in government or whether I you know, move in and out. There's going to be a lot of opportunity for people to make a big impact. And so I'm, I'm hoping that I can stay involved.
1: Wow. I think that's a, that's a great place to leave it, man. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate
0: it. Thanks, Noah. It's always fun
1: to, to chat with you. For more episodes of the Inspired Service podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.